Hello, and welcome to Papago Butte's Church of the Brethren podcast, recorded live weekly at our campus in Scottsdale, Arizona, during our normal service. pastor here, and I'm excited to be preaching uh, from you on this uh, first week of Advent. Um, So yes, we're in this special time in the church calendar, um, when there are four weeks that lead up to this season of Christmas. And when I was kind of planning things out, uh, planning services, looking at things, um, there uh, in in the the birth story of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, uh, what we're going to be doing is uh, reading from that during our lighting of the Advent candle. Uh, So we're going to kind of break that down into four sections. And then as I was looking a little bit further in that, looking at my footnotes, I realized that there are four Old Testament references in that story uh, of of Jesus' birth. Uh, There are four references in the Hebrew scriptures to the prophets uh, that appear early on uh, during that birth story. And I thought about it, I was like, there's four weeks in Advent, there's these four Old Testament prophetical references, let's do that for the season of Advent. So that's what we're going to do. So this first text that we're looking at comes from Isaiah 7, and we didn't read it earlier on. I'm kind of preaching a little bit different where I'll kind of uh, like read through the text and preach through it as I go, and, and we'll flesh out what the text is about. Um, we'll also get into some uh, controversy this morning because this passage has caused a little bit of uh, a controversy throughout the day. Uh, this has caused some major issues with inside the church. In fact, we're going to learn that Bibles were, were literally burned, uh, but from how folks uh, were to translate uh, some of the words here in Isaiah 7. So, oof, like, when you read about this, it's like in the history of this passage, it gets a little dicey, uh, caused some violence, and I'm thankful that we are a historic peace church, so we typically downplay violence. So, if my message causes a righteous anger inside of you, I hope that, like, uh, we can rely on, on our peace tradition so that I'm not burned at the stake here. All right, so with that said, let's pray and get started. So please pray with me. Lord, we are uh, thankful to be gathered here this morning. We are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the truth of your word in Isaiah's day and uh, how it was understood in Matthew's day. Uh, We're thankful for the truth of uh, your word throughout the ages and the truth of your word throughout us today as well. Uh, I pray that as I preach from Isaiah this morning and as we hear from uh, Matthew as well, that I would uh, indeed be able to preach and proclaim your truth. If I say anything that's not of you, let that be forgotten. Uh, But we pray that you would be brought glory and honor and we'd learn to better be your disciples uh, because of this. Amen. All right, so we are looking at Isaiah 7 and this passage I'm going to be reading from the, uh, the Common English Bible as we go along. And so as Isaiah 7 uh, begins, we read, there that, uh, we read there that in the days of King Ahaz, Jotham's son and grandson of Judah's King Uzziah, Aram's King Rezin, and Israel's King Pekah, Ramaliah's son, came up to attack Jerusalem, but they couldn't overpower it. When the house of David was told that Aram had become allies with Ephraim, their hearts and the hearts of their people shook as the trees of a forest shake when there is a wind." Okay, so this passage starts off, it's a bit heavy, let's break this down, who these characters are, and kind of talk about like what's going on exactly, because there's a lot of like political maneuvering going on in our passage. So we are dealing with a divided kingdom right now. Um, So there's King uh, uh, Saul, King David, and King Solomon, and after King Solomon, the nation of Israel splits into two. 
Um, Israel is, is in the north and Judah is in the south. And so that's what's happening here. We have a divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. And King Ahaz is the king of Judah. He's the king of the southern kingdom. Um, and uh, as far as Ahaz, when we read about him in the Bible, we come to find that he is not exactly a good king. If you don't believe me, you can read 2 Chronicles 28, and he's presented as a terrible guy. He did not do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Although, if you're familiar with the kings of Israel, like 95% of them aren't very good. So it shouldn't surprise us that Ahaz isn't exactly that great of a guy. Um, this passage in Isaiah 7 also points to the fact that Ahaz is not following the Lord. Um, and as we, as we kind of unpack this chapter, we'll see that there's a theme of trust uh, that's kind of at, at the forefront here. Uh, Ahaz is questioned as to who is he going to trust. Is Ahaz going to tr- trust in himself and his own military might, his own political alliances, or will he trust in the Lord? Will he trust in Yahweh? And so by what wisdom will you make decisions, Ahaz? Your wisdom or God's wisdom? That's kind of the theme of, of, this, of this section. And so what's happening here? is that the king of Aram, his name is Rezin, this is modern-day Syria, and he is actually forming a a union with the king of Israel, the the northern kingdom, King Pekah. So Rezin and Pekah are joining forces. Um, The nations of Aram and Israel are uniting because they're worried about another world power in, in, in their day and age. They're worried about Assyria, um, and so Assyria is this uh, nation that's rising up, and they're worried like, oh, if Assyria attacks us, it's going to wipe us out. So what if, what if we banded together in strength that, that way we could fight off Assyria? And so this alliance of Aram and Israel is trying now to get Judah, this third kingdom, to join them. They're like, hey, three of us together are way more powerful than just two of us. But King Ahaz is like, I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to join with you guys. And suddenly now, this uh, Aram-Israel alliance is now going to attack Judah. And so they say, well, if you're not for us, you're against us, so we're going to come in and wipe you out. And so now uh, the, the King Ahaz is trying to figure out what to do. Uh, the, in verse 2, the people are described as shaking like the trees of a forest, shaking as when there is wind. Uh, they're terrified. Two nations have banded together to attack us. Like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And so Ahaz, he's like, okay, I got to figure, figure this out. What am I going to do? He decides that the best course of action is to actually appeal to the nation of Assyria, uh, the nation that's caused Israel and Aram to unite in the first place. So, these, they're, so uh, they're worried about Assyria. And so he's like, well, let me just partner with Assyria. And that way I'll be good to go. And so in 2 Kings 16, we read about this. Uh, the king appeals to Assyria for help. Uh, He sends messengers along with a large pile of money uh, to Assyria and says, please help us. I need to align with you in order to fight off my enemies. And so while he's debating about this, while he's like kind of figuring out this plan, figuring out what he's going to do, Isaiah the prophet is called by God to step in and tell King Ahaz like, don't do this. I don't want you to do this. Do not unite with the Assyrians. Uh, But the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son share Jashub at the end of the channel by the upper pool, uh, by the road to the field where the laundry is washed. And so King Ahaz is out, uh, he's inspecting the city's water supply, kind of figuring out what he's going to do. And if you think, you know, you're going to be attacked, maybe be under siege for a while, it's not a bad idea to go out and see where the water is, just make sure everything, we have plenty of it, there's no like leaks or anything like that, make sure you have fully stocked in, in water. 
So Isaiah, he goes out to meet with Ahaz, and then Isaiah also brings along his, his son, Shear Jashub. That's Isaiah's uh, son. And so when you think about biblical names, you have names like Isaiah and Jeremiah, King, like David. These are all popular names. Never met a Shear Jashub. I'm sure that one exists, but for some reason we don't pick this name. Uh, but then uh, here is what Isaiah is told to say to Ahaz in verses 4 to 6. Uh, the Lord says to him, be careful and stay calm. Don't fear and don't lose heart over these two pieces of smoking torches over the burning anger of Rezin, Aram, and Remaliah's son. Aram has planned evil against you with Ephraim and Remaliah's son saying, let us march up against Judah, tear it apart, capture for ourselves, and install Tabil's son as the king. And so what Isaiah is basically telling King Ahaz is here is like, don't fear. Don't worry. Don't worry about these two approaching armies. Don't worry about Israel. Don't worry about Aram. Don't worry about King Rezin or King Pekah. Don't worry about these guys. Ahaz, as a reminder, you are from the line of King David. That is who you descend from. King David was promised this miraculous thing that there would always be a king in place as long as they trusted in Yahweh. That is what your ancestors were promised. Like, I will be with you, and there will always be a king here if you, if you listen to me and trust in me. And so you have nothing to fear here. These men are coming to attack you, and they're really like two smoldering stubs of firewood. They look hot, but they're going to burn out pretty quickly. They are nothing to fear as long as you trust in God. So don't make these alliances. Trust me and that I will take care of you. Isaiah continues in verses uh, 7 to 9. He says, the Lord says, it won't happen. It won't take place. The chief of Aram is Damascus. The chief of Damascus is Rezin. In 65 more years, Ephraim will be shattered as a nation. The chief of Ephraim is Samaria. And the chief of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you don't believe this, you can't be trusted. And so what Isaiah is saying through the Lord is that these two earthly kings have announced their plan. They've arrogantly said, like, this is what I'm going to do. These earthly kings have said this. But now the true king over all of the earth, the, the, the true king Yahweh, has now announced his plan. And so Damascus, that's the capital of Aram. And the king of Damascus is Rezin. He's just merely a man. That's all he is. Samaria is the capital of Ephraim, Israel, and the king of Samaria is Pekah, Remaliah's son. Merely a man, only a guy. You don't need to fear these people. In 65 years, Israel in the north is going to be taken captive. Uh, Because of their own allegiance to foreign nations instead of Yahweh, they are going to be uh, punished. And Isaiah doesn't come out and say this, but in keeping with this logic, it's almost like he's saying this. Jerusalem is the capital of Judah, And the king of Jerusalem is Ahaz. That is you. Uh, But the true king of Jerusalem is really Yahweh. And the true king is speaking with you now and laying out his plans. And so again, who are you going to trust Ahaz? Are you going to trust in yourself as king? Or are you going to trust in God as king not to make this alliance? You know, if, if you were just truly on your own, truly left to your own devices, you could do whatever you want, Ahaz. You know, if you want to join forces with Assyria, if you want to join forces with other nations, that's fine. You're allowed to do that, but it doesn't work that way. That's not how it is. Yahweh is your true king. Adonai is your true king, and he wants you to act in a certain way. 
He doesn't want you to uh, unite with these political uh, alliances with foreign nations, but he wants, you, he wants him to trust in you that he will help you and figure this out without these other alliances. And so that's what the, that's what the message is, 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 is being presented here. And then something very interesting happens in verses 10 through 11. This is very rare in Scripture. We very rarely see this. Uh, the Lord tells Ahaz that he is allowed to ask for a sign as to whether or not this is true. He's allowed to ask for a sign as to whether or not this will happen. If you don't believe me, all right, that's fair. I'm willing to work with you on this one. I will give you whatever sort of sign you want that will make you believe me. So again, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as the grave or as high uh, as heaven. Um, so this is a very generous offer from the Lord. He's basically saying to Ahaz, like, if you don't believe me, then fine. Ask for a sign, whatever your brain can conjure up. It can be as high as the highest heaven. It can be down into the grave, into Sheol. Whatever your brain can picture, ask for a sign, and I will give it to you to show you that I'm not messing around, that I'm being truthful, that you don't need to partner with Assyria. That's a, that's a very generous offer from God. Uh, that kind of stuff very rarely comes up in Scripture. Uh, but we see King Ahaz's response in verse 12. Ahaz says, I won't ask. I won't test the Lord. That is his response to this generous offer. And at first glance, if you're just kind of reading this casually, you might think like, okay, Ahaz, not a bad response. You're being a noble kind of a guy here. Because in Deuteronomy 6, 16, it says, don't test the Lord your God. That's kind of like a known thing. Like we don't put the Lord, the God, to the test. Uh, but when we stop and really think about it, kind of mull over who Ahaz is, what he's been doing with his life, um, it's very unlikely that this is coming from a good place from Ahaz. It's very unlikely that Ahaz is like trying to be a good, noble person, trying to like do the right thing. Um, no, Ahaz, that's, not, 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 that's not what's going on here. Ahaz doesn't want to take up um, God's offer of a sign because of his own morality, because of his own piety. That's not what's happening here. He, he doesn't want to take up the offer of a sign because his mind is already made up. He doesn't want to take this offer of a sign because he's already said, I'm going to do this. Literally, there's nothing in the world that can change my mind on this. He's going to go to Assyria, and nothing will change that. His mind is made up. His heart has been hardened. He's giving a very politically correct response and trying to make himself sound holy in the process when, in fact, the polar opposite is what's going on here. He's trying to be like, oh, I don't want to do this kind of thing. I'm so holy, when really his mind is already made up. He's already set in his ways. Any sign that he would uh, receive would only serve to embarrass him, and so he tries to avoid this dilemma by coming across as very pious and not uh, wanting to test God. Ahaz, he's going to trust in his own wisdom, his own strength, his own alliances, his own work. He's not going to trust in God. He's not going to listen to Isaiah or any of the other prophets. And if you can't trust God, then you might as well trust your own worst enemy, in this case, it's Assyria. He's literally going into bed with his worst enemy instead of trusting Yahweh. And so then Isaiah, he hears this and he offers this retort and he gives this condemnation to Ahaz. And he says, you don't want a sign? <laughs> Guess what? You're going to get a sign anyway and you are not going to like this sign. This sign is going to haunt you. Isaiah said, listen, house of David. Isn't it enough for you to be tiresome for people that you are also tiresome before my God? Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. 
The young woman is pregnant and is about to give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. He will eat butter and honey and learn to reject evil and choose good. Before the boy learns to reject evil and choose good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring upon you, upon your people, and upon your families, days unlike any that have come before since the days of Ephraim broke away from Judah, the king of Assyria. And so this passage is very heavy. It's caused a lot of consternation for Ahaz, and it's caused consternation for generations of believers after Ahaz as well. Um, there are numerous reasons why we'll get into this, um, and we're, bear with me because we're going to get a little bit nerdy here. Uh, we talked about some of this kind of stuff in Sunday school class. If you're within Sunday school, you kind of know where we're going with this stuff, but we're going to get nerdy. We're going to get kind of deep here. And so here's some of the reasons this has caused uh, some trouble for us. Uh, so first thing is, in the immediate context, there's this, there's this promise of a child but it's not necessarily clear who this child is, who this mother is. Like there's this child, who is this child? And then what happens is that this verse, this idea is then later picked up in Matthew, in Matthew's gospel in chapter one, as a foreshadowing uh, to the coming of Jesus. Matthew takes this verse and says like, hey, I'm talking about Jesus here. Because Emmanuel means God with us. And Matthew says the virgin will conceive and give birth. And then where it continues to get tricky is the underlying Hebrew word that Isaiah originally uses to describe this woman is better understood, better translated as young woman, not so much virgin. So the underlying Hebrew word that's being used here is about a young woman, not necessarily specifically a virgin. It's an unmarried woman with the unsaid assumption that she was a virgin. And so the Hebrew scriptures were originally written in Hebrew. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. Isaiah's writing roughly 700 BC or so. He's writing 700 years before the time of Jesus. So second or third century BC, so flash forward about 400 years now, several hundred years after the time of Isaiah, the Old Testament ends up being translated into the Greek language, into the Greek tongue. And so because Greek culture had started to rise in that day and age. So you had the Hebrew scriptures, and now suddenly you have the Hebrew scriptures appearing in Greek and they're, they're, as they're translated. And so when Isaiah is translated from Hebrew into Greek, uh, the actual word that's used in Greek is the word for virgin and not young woman. So you have two translations that exist. One says young woman, one says virgin. And Matthew, along with many of the New Testament writers, when he's quoting from the scriptures, they're often quoting from this Greek translation of scriptures, not always the Hebrew. And so uh, Matthew is actually quoting from, from, from the Greek version here. And so because of the idea of the virgin birth of Christ, uh, the idea that Mary was his mother, but you know, God was his father, Joseph is, 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 is only his earthly father, um, that's a very important idea in the Christian faith. That's one of the kind of the key doctrine that makes Christianity unique. Uh, that's an idea that Christians have wanted uh, to preserve. It's a unique and distinct part of our faith, part of our belief structure, a belief I strongly believe in. Christians throughout the ages have also strongly believed in as well. And so as the Bible kind of makes its way along, the, uh, the, the King James Bible comes along in 1611, and they, when they translated this uh, passage in Isaiah, uh, they translated it as, the virgin will be with child. And so for over 300 years, as people are speaking English, as people are doing churchy things and, uh, you know, the gospel spreading, things like that, that is how we understand this passage in Isaiah. The virgin will be with child, and there's no problem there. 
Well, within the past 50, 100 years or so, uh, there's been all kinds of new translations of the Bible that have popped up, all kinds of new translations of Bible into English. We have literally dozens and dozens and dozens of translations in, in, in English. And our, our knowledge of Greek and Hebrew has grown immensely since the King James was published 400 years ago. And so when modern translators look at this passage in Isaiah, they understand the word that's being used here uh, as a young woman. And so when they started to do that, they started to make Bibles that said the young woman will be a child. It was a bit of a disaster. It created a PR crisis. A lot of Christians thought like they were publishing a Bible that was denying the virgin birth, and they were upset about this, rightfully so. This is a copy of the RSV Bible, the Revised Standard Bible. It came out in the 1950s or so. It, this is one of the first translations to use the phrase young woman instead of uh, virgin. And what happened was a lot of people got this Bible in their hands. They came to this passage. They were upset, and they actually called for this Bible to be burned. Christians of the faith were saying this Bible should be burned, and it actually was, this thing right here. If I was preaching from this like 50, 60 years ago, there might have been some pitchforks out to get me. This created a bit of a problem. Woof. And so, um, so now when new Bibles pop up, like there's this like there's consternation. How do you translate this passage in Isaiah? Do you say virgin or do you say young woman? And so I wanted to spend some time in that this morning. I wanted to kind of nerd out, really get deep, and kind of like talk about why this has been uh, controversial and uh, why has it caused anxiety, because it's like crucially important to how we understand uh, the text. Um, so we're gonna, what we're going to do is dive into like what this meant for Ahaz, and we're going to like, then talk about what it means for us. So we're going like, to get like really in the time of Ahaz, and then we're going to expand it to like how, what it means for us in our day and age. And so in its immediate context, when Isaiah is first talking to Ahaz, it wouldn't make sense for this to be strictly about Jesus because this is occurring several hundred years before he's born. And so Isaiah is talking about this child that's to be a direct sign to Ahaz. And he's saying, like, as this boy grows up, this boy, this Emmanuel, is representing the fact that Ahaz has rejected God and that Assyria is going to come one day to destroy his kingdom. And so this child will be born, and as Ahaz is living his life, as he sees the kid in the public square, he, it's supposed to be like a living like, embodiment, a living symbol, like, oh yeah, I messed up. As this child continues to grow, as this child is like climbing on the walls, causing, you know, causing trouble as kids do, Ahaz is going to see him and be like, oh yeah, I was supposed to listen to Yahweh, I didn't, and now this child is getting older and is standing as a living example that one day I and my people and my city and everything are going to be destroyed. So like that's what this child is, is supposed to represent. And so it wouldn't make sense for Isaiah to say, guess what? you don't believe what God is saying to you. So in several hundred years, there's going to be this thing that happens that's of no relevance to you whatsoever. Like that wouldn't make sense for Ahaz. So if I were to call you up, if I were to call up Doug and say, Doug, your house is going to burn down, Doug would be like, oh, I'm not home right now. Thank you for calling me. Is, there a fi is my neighbor's house on fire? What's going on? He'd be really worried. But then if I clarified and said, no, Doug, your house is going to burn down in 300 years, he'd be like, why are you calling me right now? What does that have to do with anything that's going on right now? Like, why did you cause all this anxiety for me? 
similar scenario to what's going on here with Ahaz. In order for it to have any meaning for him whatsoever, this child, there's a child that has to be born in his lifetime right around the corner while Ahaz is still alive. And so when we kind of get into more of Isaiah, I think I understand like who he's referring to in the immediate context. So we're going to continue to nerd out a little bit. Um, so like, what's going on with this child? Who is this child? Well, um, Isaiah already has a son in, as, in the beginning of the story. Remember, he has a son named Shear Jashub, and that son's name means a remnant will return. Um, that's the son who's uh, with, with Ahaz in, in verse 3 of our current chapter. And Shear Jashub uh, is also a living example of Isaiah's preaching. There's this idea that a remnant will return despite impending destruction. So Isaiah already has a son, Shear Jashub, has, a, has an interesting name uh, or interesting uh, meaning behind his name. Well, in Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah has another son, and he names him Meher Shahal Hashbaj. Another name I've never heard in the wild. I'm sure there's some Meher Shahal Hashbaz that's out there. Haven't met him yet. And this second child, uh, the name means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. And what makes the most amount of sense, I think, for me and for a lot of scholars that are very much smarter than me, is that this second child, Meher Shahal Hashbaz, is the same child that's uh, as Emmanuel that Isaiah is originally referring to. They're one and the same, uh, that my son that I'm about to have, the second child, will be a symbol of your doom, Ahaz. Uh, the young woman that's about to give birth, Isaiah's impending marriage, fiance, uh, whoever she is, they're about to have a child. And Isaiah's second child will stand as a living embodiment to Ahab that your destruction is coming soon. And the second child will go by two names, Meher Shahal Hashbaz and also Emmanuel. Uh, when I read Lord of the Rings in college, it was sometimes hard to keep up with because there's all these characters and they all have different names. And so if you're like, reading about them, they're sitting around a table, it feels like there's 10 people in the room, but there's only maybe like three or four because like Tolkien is referring to them with different names. And I think that's something that's similar that's happening here. Isaiah's son has two names, which mean different things. Emmanuel means God with us. That's the positive side, that God is with God's people, with those that call upon God's name. This is the holy remnant. Has a second name, Meher Shahal Hashbaj, which means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil, meaning that Assyria is going to come in very quickly and overtake Judah's enemies. Israel and Aram, the nations that got King Ahaz so upset in the first place, they're going to be attacked by Assyria. And Ahaz should be entrusting in God this whole time, not the Assyrians. Uh, they're going to attack Judah's enemies. And so Judas, or sorry, Isaiah's son, with the two names, will stand as a visible and perceptible sign to that. He will serve as a constant reminder to Ahaz. It would be a constant thorn in his side, like, you should have been listening to God. This, this kid is growing up and like, realizing Assyria is right around the corner. Ahaz will eventually be attacked by the very nation that he's putting his trust in. And that's what Isaiah 7.17 uh, is all about. The Lord will bring upon you, upon your people, and upon your families days unlike that have ever come since the day Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Ahaz, if you think you're doing the right thing by putting your trust in Assyria, well, that's going to backfire on you because they're going to eventually punish you as well. And so the rest of the chapter is, is all about the terrible things that will happen in Judah when the Assyrians evade, and it's not pretty. It's going to be a lot of destruction and death. And so 
That's what's going on here immediately in Isaiah 7. Um, and so I think that his direct prophecies for us, like we like, read that, and you're like, whoa, like we're not dealing with political alliances here. I'm not like, you know, doing like, how, what do we do with this? What does this mean uh, for us today in, in our day? And we can certainly talk about putting our faith in godly wisdom versus putting it in short-sighted wisdom, selfish wisdom. We could certainly talk about like trusting in God versus trusting in like your own, you know, finite strength. That would, that would be fine. But I think like it's only appropriate to talk about what the rest of the Bible has to say about this controversial verse. 14, the young woman will be a child and this child's name will be Emmanuel. Like we said earlier, Matthew in his, in his gospel in, verse, in chapter one, he applies this verse to Jesus. And though even though Isaiah was understanding this prophecy to refer to events in his day, in his age, Matthew saw a grander vision. He saw a grander vision of what Isaiah was speaking about at a higher level. And so the original Emmanuel was a sign to a disobedient king that he should have been following God. But this new Emmanuel, the second Emmanuel, this this greater Emmanuel was something much greater, much grander. Rather than serving as a sign uh, to be following God, this Emmanuel was God. It was God in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is what Advent and that's what Christmas are all about. The righteous God became human to live with the unrighteous. The holy God became human to live with the unholy. The perfect God became human to live with the imperfect, with us, with humans. He came to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, free the demon-possessed, to free the hungry, to seek and to save the lost. That is what the new Emmanuel was all about. That was the entire ministry of Emmanuel, to seek, to save, to heal, to forgive. The original Emmanuel had that second name, Meher Shahal Hashbaz, a sign of judgment against disbelief. And this new Emmanuel has so many other names as well, so many other titles and names that we give to Emmanuel. The Christ, Messiah, Son of God, the Good Shepherd, Son of Man, Lord of Lords, Bread of Life, the Son of David, the Alpha and the Omega, the Rock, our Great High Priest, the Founder and Perfecter of our Faith, Lord of the Sabbath, Prince of Peace, King of the Jews, Savior of the World, Lamb of God, the True Light, our Redeemer, King of Kings, the Resurrection and the Life. So if you thought that first Emmanuel was kind of confusing with two names, that second Emmanuel has so many other names and so many other titles, and they're all amazing. These are just a few of the titles and the names that we give to Jesus Emmanuel, and all of them point uh, to his lordship over the world and his lordship over our lives. They point to him being our savior, to being the only one that could take away the sins of the world. That first Emmanuel was a sign for literally one person, That first Emmanuel was a sign for Ahaz. He was a sign that had relevance in his day and age. But this new Emmanuel, the second Emmanuel, will be a sign for all people and will have a a significance in every day and every age. Christ came as a man. He lived as one of us. And before his ascension into heaven at the the end of Matthew's gospel, he promises to be with us to the very end of the age. And so Jesus is very much still Emmanuel. Jesus is still very much God with us and will continue to be with us uh, through the end of time. And that is the hope that we have, 
that Christ is still here, that Christ is still alive, that Christ is still with us, and will eventually come back to redeem and remake all things. That is the great hope that we have here and now. The, the, the uh, first century, they, where, where was God? We don't know. And this baby is born. There's new hope. We have new hope as well. We look around all the craziness, all the brokenness, all the frustration, all the anger, all the, just the turmoil, all the sickness, all the disease, all the heartbreak, all the, the, just the terrible things that like, we can do and say as humans. And like, you can feel broken. And yet you have this hope that no, all is not lost. Emmanuel is with us. Jesus is still with us. He promises to constantly be with all who call upon his name, and he has given us the Holy Spirit who indwells us even here and now. The original Emmanuel was a child who served a purpose hundreds of years ago, passed away. But this new Emmanuel continues to serve a purpose each and every day and will never pass away. That is who we worship. That is who we live for. That is who we proclaim to the world. Emmanuel, God is with us. Christ is with us. This is the great hope we have. Thank you for listening to Papago Butte's Church of the Brethren podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in finding out more about our church, feel free to reach out to us at any time. Our contact information is provided at www.pbcob.org.